calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, everybody, to IGN Unfiltered. It is our monthly interview show where we sit down with the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry. I'm extremely pleased to be joined by the co-founder and chairman of Harmonix Music Systems, Alex Rogopoulos. It's, it's always good to see you, sir. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me in. You have had a uh, very unique career, which I'm <laughs> eager to talk to you about. I mean, Harmonix itself is such a unique entity within the game space. You know, you guys don't just make... You're, you're not... Uh, video gamers who happen to make music, music games, you're musicians who happen to make video games, which I've, I've always thought is the, the real big distinction between you and other people that make, uh, that make games. So what I wanted to start with is, is on that music background, what, were you always musically inclined as a kid? Yeah, well, I mean, my yes, I started studying uh, instruments as a young child um, and, and studied them for years. Um, although I just want to quickly hedge that and saying I never got very good at them, you know. Even though I took lessons for years and years on a bunch of different instruments, I was always kind of a, a hack. And, <laughs> and actually, the, the the frustration I felt with never being able to really break through and get great at an instrument was part of what you know created the motivation to do what we do. Interesting. So the seed was planted very early. <laughs> yes. And you were smart enough to capitalize on it later. Uh, but I mean, you, and clearly, you must have been. You're, you're that alone indicates you're a bright guy who, if you could take that forward, but uh, you ended up at MIT. So uh, was that always your dream, being from the Boston area? Was, was MIT always sort of one of the, the big goals? Well, it was, I think in large part because my, uh, my father went to MIT. He was a chemical engineer there, and he very much began indoctrinating me at a young <laughs> age, you know, that that's where I was going to go no to pressure. college. Yeah. <laughs> So that was kind of understood from the beginning. Uh, and then in college, I believe, that's, is that where you met the, your, your fellow Harmonix co-founder, Iran Agozi? Uh, that's right. And uh, we met as undergrads in some music theory classes, but then we ended up as office mates in graduate school at the MIT Media Lab. And we, the two of us shared a passion for this mission, and we both decided to start Harmonix when we graduated. Which, again, it's like, uh, well, actually, let me back up for a second. So before you meet him, but before you guys start harmonics, what what did you want to do with your life? You get you get the pressure from dad on the on getting to MIT. Maybe maybe you should go into engineering too. But 
What did uh, what did young Alex Rogopoulos want to do before uh, video games came around? Uh, well, I, I always loved music as a kid, uh, starting very young, and then also loved uh, computers. Started programming when I was I don't know sixth or seventh grade, and uh, also loved video games as a kid. I think my dad brought home a Magnavox Odyssey system when I was three nice. years old or two. Um, and so, uh, although it's funny, I wasn't thinking about games at all when we started harmonics. We'll come back to that. But definitely computers and, and music were, you know, my two greatest interests as a kid. When I went to MIT, actually, I went there thinking I was going to be a programmer. Um, yeah. I entered in computer science, but really after a year or so at MIT, I realized that, like, everyone else there in computer science was better <laughs> at it than I was. I thought, okay, uh, maybe this isn't what, what I should be trying to do professionally. So I switched... Uh, you know, eventually found my way to majoring in music at MIT, which is a strange thing to major in at MIT. Uh, there aren't many music majors there, but it's an amazing place to study music, actually, because when you're studying music at MIT, you're also studying you know, calculus and physics and chemistry and material science and special relativity and, like, all of the, you know... Okay. almost a break at that it, point. It is. And so it's... And you get to, while studying music, you get to meet incredible other people from other disciplines that lead to the kind of, you know, brainstorming that, you know, led, led to harmonics, actually. Wow. Um, so your first game, when you and Iran get together, it's called The Axe, uh, which let you use a PC joystick to do guitar solos. Yeah, so that was the first thing we ever did. It was kind of an outgrowth of the work we were doing as uh, grad students together at the Media Lab. And it was it was not a game, actually. It was just a, a creative tool. And, um, you know, we were... Uh, when we started Harmonics, we, as I mentioned, we weren't thinking about video games at all. We were just thinking of, our, you know, this problem we wanted to solve, was, which was how to help people who are not musicians yeah. feel what it feels like to play music. Because, you know... Playing music it is really one of life's greatest pleasures. It is profoundly joyful to make music. And most people try to learn an instrument, and almost all of them quit because it's so damned hard. Um, and then they spend their whole lives like wishing that they yeah, could. What if. what if, right? And so we just wanted to invent new ways to, uh, for people to feel what it feels like to make music. And so our first uh, product, the Axe, was uh, was our first attempt at that. It was a way for you to improvise guitar solos or pianos, really any instrumental solos through a yeah. joystick, where you would make the melodies rise and fall, or the rhythms grow more and less intense, or you know control the music in different ways with different buttons and things like that. And um, it was a absolute failure. Uh, you know, the I mean, really, no one bought like, it for lots of So reasons. just commercially, but it, it, like, it did what you wanted it to do? do you- well, sort of. Um, in fact, it was a bit, um, we were a bit blinded by it. It had this problem, which is that it made an incredible demo. And everyone who played it sort of like laughed and got really into it. And that this is amazing. How does this even work? You know, it was a little bit magical because the machine was composing music and you were manipulating it with a high degree of, you know, control. Yeah. On, in real time, and it, it was made a really cool demo. And because of how positively everyone reacted to the demo, we became convinced that it was worthy of being a product. And we were, you know, kids at this point, so we were really clueless about what it took to make something commercially successful. And the point is, though, that people had their 15 minutes of fun with it, and then they were like, "Okay, well, now what do I do with it?" They moved on, right? And that's you don't you can't make a product out of something that only entertains people for fifteen minutes, right. um, except in maybe like theme park context or things like that. Um, so, but we were so young and naive about it that it was it, it took us a long time. It took us years, really, to 
fully appreciate the fact that that basic play paradigm that we had been uh, pursuing was not sufficient to build a, a business around. Do you ever? Do you ever? Do you still have a copy of it around? You ever fire it up and look at it from time to time? I do still have a copy sitting on my shelf, but I never even attempt to fire it up. It's more there as like a, a constant sort of reminder to know be, your roots. To, to, well, and just to be humble, yeah. like just always. Like I just try to keep like a, this whole complete track record of failures in constant <laughs> in constant display, so that you know you never forget. Well, after that uh, was a product called Cam Jam, if I have this correct, which let you do guitar solos using body controls uh, via a webcam attached to your computer. Now, that sounds, first of all, like a precursor to both Guitar Hero and Dance Central in in a crazy way. Uh, And Fantasia as well. And Fantasia. And then was that also used... In Disney theme parks as well? Uh, almost. So we went through this period, you know, as I just mentioned, where we were beginning to appreciate that the kind of experience we had created was great for sort of short term, 15 tra- minute yeah, yeah. experiences, great for theme parks. And so we did do a project uh, for Disney, uh, which was installed in Epcot Center. Maybe it still is. It was there huh. for quite a long time. That was, it was just gesturally controlling music. Uh, but instead of a joystick, you, there were infrared sensors tracking your hands. Yeah. I think it was called What If Music Were in the Air, or it was the exhibit, or something like that. Um, so we did that, and then Cam Jam was a product that used a, a, a camera to track your motion, and you could control music in various ways. And it was kind of our our first uh, experience with, or you know, experimentation with motion control uh, of music. Again, neither of those products went anywhere at all. Well, I mean, I w- how do you even how do you hook up with Disney to get d- does does somebody who bought Cam Jam, or is it a Disney? How, do you, how does that connection happen? Yeah, I don't think we ever even shipped Cam Jam as a commercial product. That was just a demo that we hmm. built. And I think, you know, we went to a trade show that was focused on the theme park industry. And we were showing off this demo that we had made. And I think someone from Disney saw it and liked it. Interesting. And how, how it Did you ever go down to Epcot to oh, yeah. see it? Yeah, several times. Yeah. That's cool. That, that, was just, that's a, that would be... I would feel like I made it at that point. That was pretty fun. <laughs> well, yeah, it's easy to say that, although, you know, it's, you still had bills to pay, and we were struggling to pay. So. Uh, so then you move forward. You start to, Harmonix starts to evolve into more of a, a video game developer. Frequency and amplitude come along. Yeah, I mean, and that was, that was after a, a com- a total right turn for us as a studio. I mean, something happened to trigger that. I mean, we had been uh, struggling for years to make this the interactive music thing work. Um, but then something happened, which is that uh, rhythm games appeared in Japan. Yeah. Um, you know, DDR, of course, but also Beatmania, Parappa, you know, which was really the um, the uh, kind of light bulb moment for us when I, you know, when I was, I was playing Parappa for the first time and, you know, my, I was just like grinning from ear to ear playing that game. And, you know, I think at that point we realized, all right, Video games is how we can do what we're trying to do, but in a way, well, first of all, where you have these um, this incentive structure yeah. for long-term engagement, and second of all, where there's a business, an actual business model, um, you know, to pay the bills. And so we, at that point, began hiring um, a bunch of video game developer talent to try to build out our skill set in that area and start prototyping our first games. So we can we can as as a Guitar Hero Rock Band fan, fan of what you guys do, it's it's fair to trace the sort of inspiration for all of it back to Parappa? I think so, yeah. I certainly, cool. I mean, to some degree, Beatmania, also, you know, some of the early Konami games, but uh, definitely, you know, Parappa was, was transformative for us. <laughs> uh, so that, now I want to move, 
I'm going to move the questioning into now the, the gaming section of, of your career. And that's, uh, so, Karaoke Revolution, big hit for you guys. Was that sort of the, the first time where you, were, you really felt like you were on solid footing as a, as a company? Or? Well, it's the, see, it's hard to say. So, um, you know, the first games that you mentioned that we made were Frequency and then it's Sequel Amplitude that we yeah. made for, uh, for Sony. And those games, uh, you know, th- that was pretty painful for us, those games, because we thought we had broke it, started to break through as a business. Right. We had to deal with Sony. They were a big, mighty publisher. Sure. There was television advertising and, ma- you know, mass market distribution of the games, and we thought, and... Those games were critical darlings. They got great reviews. The people who played them loved them. And we thought, oh, this is it. This is our, this is our moment. We're right. finally going to have an actual business and people, you know, people finally play the games that we're making. And neither of them was commercially successful. I mean, they sold a little bit, but um, you know, not, they were not profitable businesses. And I think one of the hard lessons for us at that point was to realize that making a game that was fun to play once you tried it was actually not enough. That we really had to, because when we explained those games to people, no one understood them at all. They looked at a screenshot, they looked at a description, and everyone just, they're just like eyes glazed over. And I think we realized that we had a, we had to start thinking more deeply about the wrapper around the game. What is the fantasy? Like, who are you asking the player to be? What is the fantasy that they're stepping into? Or what is the mental model of the, you know, what is the wrapping paper that you're trying to lure them into the experience with, right? And so um, when Konami came to us and said, hey, would you guys like to make a, a karaoke game for us, which became Karaoke Revolution, for the first time we started thinking about how to package the, the game. And Karaoke Revolution was uh, moderately successful. I mean, we did, I think, five titles in that series for yeah. Konami. So it paid the bills for years, and you know they sold enough to keep making them, and that was great. But they weren't like big hits or anything like that. Um, and... Um, so to, back to your question, like, did we finally feel like we were, you know, on solid footing as a business? Sort of, but we, you know, we, you know, we were living hand to mouth for that whole period. Frequency, amplitude, and all the karaoke revolution titles, plus one non-music game that we did for Sony, the iToy anti-grav game. Oh yeah. that we did, um, which which is a, was a very emotionally complicated even decision to do that project. Um, you know, we were living hand to mouth, and we had, did not have a hit product. And in fact. Um, you know, we did the iToy game for Sony Antigrav, and we had this mo- moment of doubt in 2004 like, when that shipped. Like a crisis of conscience? Yeah, absolutely, because that game, it was, our, um, it was not a music game. It was our lowest-reviewed game by far. Hmm. Um, and it outsold everything else we had ever done oh. by far. <laughs> and uh, there was a moment in you know, fall of 2004 after we had shipped that where we were like looking at that information and thinking to ourselves, we're almost 10 years in at this point. Not nine years in, we're li- still living hand to mouth. We've never we've had critical success, but never commercial success. And then here we make this non-music game that's like kind of mediocre, and yet it blows away the sales of everything else we've done. What the the hell are we doing making music games? Like, is this just a fool's errand, this whole thing, our whole reason for being? Um, and it was right at that moment we were, where we were having serious crisis of confidence about whether to continue that uh, a tiny little publisher called Red Octane called us. And, and, you know, they at that point they made dance mats, like third-party yeah. dance mats for Dance Dance Revolution, and they wanted to become a publisher. And they basically said to us, hey, um, if we make a guitar peripheral, will you make a guitar game? 
and uh, and that became Guitar Hero. And then, of course, after we shipped Guitar Hero, that's at that point we finally felt like we had a business. Yeah, we'll we'll get to that in a second. But I'm kind of curious. So, I mean, do you have do you have like are your is your family wondering what the hell you're doing with your life? Are or are they super supportive? Or because you know you're saying you're talking about how almost ten years and it's you're just kind of you're getting by but not really succeeding. Did you think about just shutting the whole thing down and and, uh, trying to figure out something else to do with your life at any point? Not really. I mean, everyone everyone was so supportive. Family, I mean, our our investors, our angel investors who had been supporting us through all those years – were amazing, meaning I think a lot most investors would have written us off like long earlier, but we kept getting new rounds of investment and people willing to, to stay with us while we kind of slowly figured it all out. Um, and yeah, there was that moment around the release of Antigrav where we're like, God, is this what what are we doing? You know, but even in that darkest moments, I think that we still felt the same passion about the mission that we felt at the very beginning of the whole thing. That's great. Um, so. Um, you know, we're just fortunate that in the end it all, you know, worked out okay. Did uh, you realize that the irony of, of what you, or how I just heard your, that whole story, it's exactly like you were actually living out a band fantasy. You were, you were the cool indie band who, every, who a bunch of people loved but never broke through with success, and then you're like one pop song <laughs> broke through and had success, and you questioned your entire sort of musical integrity. It's like there was the, I don't know, maybe I'm crazy, but it, that seems fitting that, that it's yeah, no, exactly that same arc. Very much that model, yeah. <laughs> um, so had you guys seen, or were, were you aware of Guitar Freaks out of Japan before going into Guitar Hero? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was, and I think, um, you know, Red Octane, when they approached us and said, hey, would you guys make a guitar game? That was very much, you know, everyone was uh, was aware of that. And yeah. I think the assessment was, okay, well, that's a great source of inspiration, but there are so many aspects of that product that make it not suitable for a Western market in terms of the music that's in sure. it, the visual aesthetics, the, you know, and um, some game design choices, et cetera. So uh, on the one hand, we were aware of it and thought it was really cool, actually, and it was a great sort of point of inspiration. On the other hand, you know, we kind of wanted to throw away everything, you know, it's everything and start from a blank, uh, yeah. do, blank slate. Do you go find it and play it, or do you just want to not even, like, you, you want to sort of, of stay away from it and just have your own sort of idea of what how you wanted to tackle a guitar game? Yeah, well, I mean, we had all played Guitar Freaks in the arcades in Tokyo, so we yeah. knew the game, but when we were working on Guitar Hero, we weren't actually actively playing it because I think we, to a large degree we didn't want choices that they had made to, you know, complicate or pollute yeah. our thinking about it. Yeah, it makes sense. So in the beginning of Guitar Hero, you guys could pretty much only get cover songs. Um, was it was that sort of a financial thing, like just because the, the masters would have cost more, or was it just because... Nobody knew who you were, really, and, and the, the labels weren't going to hand over <laughs> Definitely the, the real both. stuff. I mean, it's at least twice as expensive to get the, uh, the, the original masters. So there's the financial factor. I mean, and this was a tiny indie project. I mean, yeah. we didn't have the budget to go after the original masters. And even if we did, frankly, like, no one had heard of us. And recording artists and the labels, you know, understandably are protective of original masters. They don't want to just license it to anything. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's kind of brand asso- association and attachments that go along with that. So 
um, really no one would give us the time of day at that point. Um, just funny, you know, with frequency and amplitude, uh, we actually had original masters in those games because the, Sony was our publisher and Sony can Could get things happen, done. Yeah. Yes, and Sony was great at that. Um, but when it was a tiny indie project, it was just not feasible. You guys found some... Look, the, the, the covers that are in the original game, and, and Guitar Hero 2 as well, they're pretty good. Like, yeah. how... How uh, are there any? Do you have any sort of interesting stories from either uh, finding those those musicians to do that stuff, or well, it was all in one studio on the West Coast. This great group called Wave Group that we found. I forgot how we found them. Maybe through Sony. I can't remember. But uh, but uh, fantastic group of musicians who just really threw themselves into that with whole heart and did uh, fantastic covers for us. Yeah. Who do you remember who? Uh, who was sort of the, the first major artist that you remember really getting on board with, with Guitar Hero saying, you know, I believe in that, like, take, my ma- take the master, I totally believe in what you're doing. Or maybe, I don't know if that didn't come till Rock Band. I mean, you had some originals, but do you remember that first artist of really... I don't really remember you? the first artist, because I think a lot of them kind of came together at the same moment. But it was when, you know, after... Uh, uh, after Guitar Hero 1 happened and we were working on Guitar Hero 2, during that year, you know, Red Octane got acquired by Activision and we yeah. got acquired by Viacom, by MTV Networks. And so when we started working on Rock Band and putting some stakes in the ground about the, aspect, the aspects of Rock Band that we, we thought were going to be critical and, and move the genre forward, one of them was getting original masters. And um, and so at that point, we had MTV Networks helping us go out to get that music. And it's a little easy. I mean, between the commercial success of the earlier titer, titles and the buzz around that and then having more budgets, you know, it was a lot easier to go get, get the material at that point. So. so Guitar Hero exploded, of course. Was there uh, was there a moment in your life where you realized, like, oh, this is huge and like, we did it? There was. There was a very specific moment. Um, it wasn't huge yet, but... It was winter, I think it was like February-ish of 2006. So at that point, it was um, a few months after uh, Guitar Hero 1 had been released. And, and Guitar Hero 1 was not like a big hit out of the gate, right? Like our tiny publisher, Red Octane, yeah. Red Octane, like they didn't have budgets for marketing. They didn't have budgets to manufacture tons of inventory. So it was, it was not selling big yet. But there was a moment that winter, uh, a few months after it shipped, where you know YouTube was kind of a new thing at that point-ish, new-ish. And, uh, and I just typed Guitar Hero into YouTube, and what I saw was literally hundreds of videos that people had made of themselves playing the game and, po- cool. and, and posted. <laughs> and I had like a kind of goosebumps moment you know, where I realized something cultural was happening with the game. Was there, uh, when, when the whole thing, I mean, the, the rock band comes out, and did you feel like when rock band hits, is that the, is that sort of, was that the, the end point for the studio, like, was that sort of, did Rock Band achieve everything the the studio sort of was about and stood for? Well, let's see. So, gosh, big question. In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, The ways in which I would say yes, it did, is that this vision for a kind of... uh, big budget, multiplayer, music performance simulation with multiple instruments and original masters and it's being marketed by MTV and we're a major distribution and it's, it's, you know, it's like it had, it, it was like a fully realized 
version of a vision that had existed for more than a decade right. in some form, you know, being brought to market with trumpets. And it was so it definitely felt like a, a kind of pinnacle in that regard of something we had been striving for for a very long time. However, it didn't feel that way. It didn't. It huh. really didn't. We didn't. It, it didn't feel like a victory. It actually, in some ways, felt like the game was beginning, and there was a lot of tension at that point for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it was not proven yet that people would spend like two hundred dollars for a video game. Right. You know, we were like, full God, band kit, yeah. full band kit. We were like, what the hell are we thinking? Right? Like, people are. Are people really going to spend this much money? For to, a game? And you had to convince retailers too to take a giant, that stock. A giant box. <laughs> um, so there was that, and furthermore, um, uh, you know, Guitar Hero is now owned by Activision. Activision is very good at what they do. Uh, Guitar Hero by Guitar Hero Three, which launched right around the same time yep. as Rock Band One. It was a huge franchise at that point, absolutely gargantuan with like Activision fully behind it at retail and in paid media. And it was like, that's where all of the heat was, you know, the, the kind of market heat was around Guitar Hero 3. And all of a sudden, you know, Rock Band, which was this big thing for us, right? It was kind of like the indie You're entry. Still the indie, yeah. We're still the <laughs> underdog, like coming in to fight against Activision. Geez, you know, and we didn't, you know, we really didn't know how that was going to play out, you know? So, there was a lot of anxiety and stress. We were also learning how to do hardware for the first time. We had never done that before in our lives. Meanwhile, it's like, okay, in a year, we have to go from knowing nothing about making hardware to like shipping like millions and millions of units into yeah. retail. So mostly we just like lost a lot of sleep that year. So it wasn't really a moment of celebration so much as a moment of anxiety because we were entering a competition against a total juggernaut. Right. Did, did, I mean, be honest, did it, did it piss you off that... Guitar Hero 3 was built on the back of what you'd made, was the one that took off, and you know you, you guys had made this thing, and now it was just sold, and, and t- sort of the, the momentum that you'd, that you'd started was, wasn't, you weren't sort of reaping the, the benefits of that? Well, um, so uh, I wouldn't say we were angry about it. It was emotionally complicated um, because we were... Um, we were attached to the Guitar Hero brand. Like, we, we had poured our hearts and souls yeah. into crafting that brand identity, and we loved it. And so then seeing it, uh, and then, so for it to become our, you know, our arch nemesis in the marketplace with, you know, versus our new brand was just tough for us because on the one hand, you know, Rock Band, it's our thing now. Like, we want to be victorious with sure. our new brand, right? But the flip side is, like, we didn't exactly want to beat Guitar Hero. We love Guitar Hero, <laughs> right? And so to some degree, uh, you know, we were happy to see both of them thriving and evolving in their own different directions and whatnot. Um, you know, but, like, business is business and competition is hard. And so, you know, we, that, we had to but deal like, with that. But, like, so th- GH3 and Rock Band had, had some crossover on songs. Mm-hmm. Do you, is there, like, a, a creative and professional pride where you compare your note charts and you're like, ours is better? Yep. Because <laughs> yes, I would do is. that. Yes, there is. We took, we, there is definitely <laughs> professional pride in, in, the, in the note charting in one domain, yeah, for sure. Because to me, that was always the big difference between, I mean, with all due respect to the developers that worked on uh, the games after you left. Like, again, what I said at the top of the interview, you guys are musicians who happen to make video games, whereas I think when it, when it wasn't you guys making Guitar Hero anymore, it was, it was video game developers making a game about music, and yep. I, I think to the player there was a almost an a, a 
a difficult thing to pin, pin down there, but when you played it, you could tell. Yeah. You could tell the difference. No, and it was. It's it's one of the things that has been a super high priority for us in in making music games is making sure that those aspects, the musical aspects of gameplay choices, are you know thoughtfully attended to. And our audio department, they're all like Berkeley College of Music grads and uh, you know or other you know serious hardcore like professional musicians who yeah. really take this stuff seriously and do great work. Would you? Uh from time to time, would you guys throw out like entire note charts and just start over on a song? Because I remember uh, this is too inside baseball, but I remember there was a, a version of um, oh boy, I think it was might have been the Seeker. It was a Who song oh, yeah. that was we had we had uh, the debug kits at our office, and you know you guys would put upload stuff to there because it was a developer network. Yeah. And then, but then when the song finally to- came out later, it was a totally different note chart. Yeah, so, yeah. Was, were there times where you guys just like you just felt like you'd review something and felt like, oh, this isn't quite working, and, and yeah. just redo your approach to how to do a song? Well, we iterate on that stuff, and so maybe there'll be a first pass on gameplay authoring, on note charting, and then it'll go into our audio QA group, Aqua, we call them, and. Um, and who are also musicians and also, you know, have, like, they play the game very well, yeah. and as you can imagine, <laughs> and also have very strong opinions about, you know, charting approach and charting quality, and there will, can be some back and forth if, like, the first pass is kind of missing something. So uh, the, the, the meteoric rise and fall of the guitar, you know, rock band type, uh, the guitar game genres is well chronicled. Do you... Do you blame Activision for it? Do you blame yourselves? Do you think, that was, is it really nobody's fault? Was it just sort of, it was what it was? How do you sort of look back on that two to three year window where it just went, was huge and then it seemed like it was pretty much over? Yeah, well, so complicated subject, of course, but I mean, I think there's a lot of like a armchair analysis about it where people just be like, yeah, Activision oversaturated the market and that's why it, you know, collapsed. And, you know, there's probably some truth to that. They were releasing an insane number of titles and and that sort of thing. So that's maybe an ingredient. But I think the reality is way more complicated than that. Um, For example, um, well, one factor is, you know, we... uh, we were selling the most expensive video games in the market on top of a severe financial recession. Right? It's you know it was as hard as it might have been to buy a you know an ex, a two hundred dollar video game in holiday of two thousand seven. Imagine that in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, yeah. when all of a sudden incomes are contracting and yeah. people are you know very financially anxious. So that was a factor. Um, I also think um, uh, that the games did not evolve to provide either sufficient innovation or the right kind of innovation to keep people's interest. I think both Activision and we had a misplaced confidence that just by refreshing the music in the game, there would be enough novelty to sustain everyone's interest in yeah. the gameplay. And actually, that has been true for some people. I mean, we still have this dedicated core of players who are, like, showing up every week to play the game and buying the new songs, and God, I love those people, right? You know, because they they've sustained the franchise Absolutely. for, you know, 10 years now. But in terms of that, that heyday of, you know, whatever, we had, like, you know, one point tens of millions of people playing the game, they had that experience and loved that experience in that window 
But then they had had it, and just giving them more music to have an identical experience, I think, was not going to be enough to uh, to sustain their interest. There were, frankly, a lot of casual gamers who showed up in kind of peak Wii. You know, there was yeah. that period where, like, a lot of non-gamers were suddenly playing console games because of the Wii brought sure. in this new audience. And a lot of those people have moved on from consoles, and they're now playing, like, tablet and phone games, right? And, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to get those people back on the consoles. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So in hindsight, it, what, would you have, what would you have done differently, if anything? Um, well, I probably would have accelerated the innovation uh, along some axes that actually we're now very actively engaged in. Um, but, you know, I would, if I could rewind the clock 10 years, I probably would have tried to make progress on some of those axes, you know, several years earlier, actually. Uh, you've now no doubt met a whole lot of famous rock musicians face-to-face mm-hmm. uh, in um, your life. Do you have any, are, do you have any good stories from, from meeting anybody, anything, anything crazy? Even, like, maybe convincing them to be... To, be in the game or, or something yeah, like that? Yeah, so the most interesting, of course, was the Beatles. Uh, yeah, I was going to get to that, but go right ahead. Well, so this was a pro- that was a very long courtship. Uh, it actually started with uh, George Harrison's son, da- Danny Harrison, mm-hmm. wonderful chap, a musician. He was also a Guitar Hero fan, and you know we were introduced to him through, uh, through uh, the MTV uh, music president, this guy named Van Toffler, also a wonderful guy. And he... Immediately saw the you know the potential of doing a you know a, a Beatles rock band game and be, you know be, so we began meeting all of the constituents which involved like the, the label side multiple labels the publishing all of the you know surviving the, sur- yeah, yeah I mean, Yoko the, and Danny Harrison yeah and uh, you know the, the Apple Apple Corps and uh, so it was a long courtship process as it should be because that's uh, you know that's material that you want to take very seriously yeah. if you're going to give it a video game treatment and so there was a moment where we uh, you know we had our first meeting with Paul McCartney and in, in London and uh, we wanted to show him the gameplay the rock band gameplay but not just with anything we wanted to show it to him with Beatles music sure. so we mo- mocked up it, this wasn't Beatles rock band at this point it was just rock band but yeah. with some Beatles music that we had kind of hacked into it to, um, so that I could show him the game with own music, so we were over there doing a demo. And what um, song did you pick? Um, Taxman, I think, was the one I was playing in that demo. And um, were you on drums? Because I know you like you. You tend to play in, in public demonstrations of rock band. You often tend. To I do often the play the drums. Yeah, that's that's kind of you know that's my default go to. But in this case, I was playing the bass because it was is his bass part, right? <laughs> and the funny thing is, so I don't. I generally don't get 
nervous when like meeting celebrities or whatever. But this was a case where this guy, like I've idolized this band since I was like seven years old. So I was nervous. And in fact, when I was playing the part for him, I was uh, uh, flubbing it a bit, you know, which is not something I normally do. But I'm like, really? This is when I'm going to like, you know, not be nailing the part. And he sort of joked, um, he said, actually, I really needed to understand what happens when you don't play all the notes correctly. So that's, you know, informative. And then he also, afterwards, he did something that was just incredibly warm and generous, which is, he said, um, uh, look, obviously you're nervous. Uh, he, he says, when I'm nervous, and then he pulls out this, this, um, this kind of bunch of lavender, this fresh cut lavender. And he like pulled out a few sprigs and he said, here, I cut this from my garden this morning. I, um, I keep this with me when I travel through the city so that I don't get stressed out in traffic wow. or other things. You should have some. You just smell it, you know, and it just helps you relax. And that, I just... What, was a, kind of, what a wonderful human being. It was. Being. It was like, like an incredibly like, warm gesture. And it actually kind of set the tone for the collaboration over the subsequent year or, or so where actually every, you know, all of the members involved. I mean, they were holding us to a very high standard, as they should have, yeah. but they were very... They were, you know, with us on that journey, trying to make it great. Is is that uh, is, where did or where does Beatles Rock Band rank on your list of career accomplishments? Well, I mean, it was, uh, it, if not the high point, certainly on the short list of of uh, high points for me personally. I mean, that you know, there's exactly one moment in. Uh, in all of the games we've released where I actually like broke down crying while playing our own game and that was actually in the final cinematic of the you know uh, in the song The End yeah. you know playing uh, the Beatles where I was like wow I, I feel really proud of what we've done here what was, was was the could you feel any different energy at the company during the development of that game because of I'm yourself and I'm sure a lot of other people were even probably more invested in, in making sure that that the Beatles rock band was as good as it could be. Well, it was. I mean, everyone was excited because Jesus, we're making a Beatles game, right? Like, and that so that was exciting. But it's also the stakes were high, right? You know, for example, there was uh, there was this one day where Yoko came to the studio, and we were showing her the our first cut at making John. Oh, singing and animated in the game, and when we were showing her, you could just see it in her face. She was not happy. It oh. wasn't. It just wasn't good enough. And she, you know, she let us know, and on no uncertain terms, that it was not good enough. And she was very clear about the ways in which it wasn't. And that was pretty stressful for people. Like we hadn't really ever, as video game makers, kind of had a client to please in exactly the same way as we did uh, with the. Uh, uh, on that project, but the result of us, ha- of, you know, having our feet held to the fire in that way was we ended up making a much better game, I think, than we would have so otherwise. All your animators are just sweating bullets yeah. in the back of the room. Yes, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there, our our creative lead on that project is this fellow named uh, Josh Randall, wonderful guy, really talented guy, and I don't know how he survived it, honestly, having to keep that group of people happy all at the same time. Uh, so then, so after that, then in 2010. You and, and other Harmonic shareholders, uh, of which I assume you are one of the significant mm-hmm. shareholders as a co-founder, uh, you ended up suing Viacom uh, from what I believe, if I read the whole thing correctly, over bonus payments. Um, and you ended up being awarded $300 million. You won. Was, what was, what's, what's that day like when you have to sort of fight for your live, your, you know, what you've what you've earned as a company, and then you actually win. 
Well, uh, God, huge, complicated subject. So first of all, to be clear, um, you know, the way that all worked is that there were, uh, when we sold the company to Viacom, um, you know, at that point, we had been funded by angels for years and yeah. years. So we were, you know, the large majority of the company was actually owned by our investors at that point. And it was, a, you know, an earnout deal, meaning that there were contingent payments based upon the you know, financial performance of the business sure. in the subsequent years. So it was actually, that lawsuit was not by, you know, the employees, uh, you know, the studio. It was by essentially the head of the investor group. Right, okay. who, um, and so that was, you know, who was responsible for, for leading that dispute. Although it was a, you know, legitimate dispute over you know the terms of the merger that they had acquired us, and so it was. It was pretty anxiety producing for for us for years to have that kind of hanging over our heads. You know, we felt like we had done a deal in good conscience, and we had like worked our hardest to like make the business successful over the subsequent years. And so to have that, you know, conflict arise after that was like certainly not pleasant. Um, but you know, obviously, we were happy at the end of the process. Yeah, because I had uh, Richard Garriott in here too, and he ended up uh, having to sue NCSoft, and he ended up winning. And and yeah, he he said, and it's it's just like, it's it's just like the worst. You don't wish a loss like having to endure a lawsuit on anybody. It sounds like it's just one of the most stressful things you can possibly have in your life. It is incredibly stressful and unpleasant. And I mean, part of it just comes from the fact that um, in lawsuits. Lawyers uh, will, it seems, will say anything, uh, completely unanchored to the truth in any way. You'll see, I mean, like anyone who's been through a lawsuit, you know, has seen this, right? But you'll just see opposing counsel say things, and, you know, and everyone's jaws will hit the floor that these things are being said. They're so detached from reality, you know? So that's, you know, that's, uh, and I'm not just, I'm not talking about Viacom in this case. You know, we've been through other lawsuits and whatnot, um, you know, which happens to, really to any business. But after a while, you realize that that's kind of just what the game is about, you know, that their lawyers like saying anything to, you know, make their clients, to get a good result for their clients. And that's just. Richard Garriott said the exact same thing to me that it was just, Telling me about utter fabrications that would happen, and how and how just as a, as someone who's not a, you, you know you're not used to being in a court, it's just completely shocking. It is. Oh man. Uh, so after the after that lawsuit's over, was did you ever have any thought to just walking away and saying, you know what, I <laughs> we won. I'm I'm doing okay. Let's, I, I should just walk away and retire and not do this anymore. Not really, um, in large part because, I mean, look, the, the fact that we were commercially successful and there are financial rewards that come from that, uh, you know, that's great, of sure. course. Um, but um, we, what's driving us every day isn't really the hope of financial rewards. Like, that's, that's kind of icing on the cake. Yeah. Like, it's, uh, like, the most emotional moments for us are always when we ship a game that we're proud of and then watching the world react to that is, like, that's the real compensation in a lot of ways. Like, seeing people uh, going crazy about a game that we've made oh, is, I mean, like, that is the best food. You know? I've, I've told you this before, but, I mean, I, to me, Rock Band is... It's definitely a top-five game all-time for me because I've never before and never since had a, a multiplayer experience like that where there is... You get four people in a room playing that game. Yeah. There is an energy there in is, that room... Yeah. That's that's that a you know a Halo or a Call of Duty or a you know a StarCraft that just these other great multiplayer games. It's just a different. It's just a different thing. When did you know? Actually, I'll just back up real quick for a second. When did you know 
that you had some, that sort of secret sauce with, with Rock Band? When did you know it just there, worked? Pretty early on. And, and actually, with our, I would say that generally with our best games, you know pretty early in development. Uh, you know, For example, with Guitar Hero 1, when the first prototype was up, it was ugly. It was all programmer art, just like black and white yeah. scratches on a screen, low-quality audio. And yet... It was already super fun. You just wanted to play again immediately, you know, when 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 a song ended. And I would say I felt something pretty similar in the early prototypes of Rock Band. It was like super hacked in a bunch of ways, but just the fact that you were doing this thing, you were playing this music game, and you were playing it with this group of other people, and your your collective survival depended upon everyone to kind of doing their part, and it all meshed together into this kind of unified experience. It just Clearly, you know, there was something special there. Yeah, so, I, I remember in, uh, er, before Rock Band 1 came out, there was a video that either leaked or got onto YouTube. It was of four people from Harmonix playing Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. And it just it looked like the most fun thing I'd ever seen, and then it certainly turned out that way. Uh, yeah. Uh, so it, now into the sort of post-Rock Band era, you've got Dance Central. Mm-hmm. Where, where did the idea for Dance Central come from and... How quickly does Microsoft say yes when when you're pitching it to them? Or did they come to you? Uh, Well, no, so it was pretty interesting, actually. So this was around, I would say, about 2009, around the time we were releasing The Beatles. It was it was it was obvious that the the big boom in in the band games was kind of coming to a close. I mean, there was still a business there, but it wasn't like the you know from the heyday in 2007, yeah. 2008, right? So it was clear that we needed to start coming up with some new concepts. You know, what was our next game going to be? And um, you know, in the same way that we looked at some of the early rhythm games in Japan and thought, like, okay, how, how we can how can we do that, but you know, but better and in a way that's appropriate for a Western audience and all that. You know, obviously, Dance Dance Revolution had been um, had been very successful uh, and continued to be successful, um, but on you know. On some level, it was like a stepping game and not really a dancing yeah. game. Like dancing involves your whole body, and so we thought, okay, how can we make a dancing game like that's better? One that really involves engaging your entire body in the music. And so we started prototyping and Connect. We didn't know anything about Connect at this point. We were just uh, we were using various kind of off-the-shelf motion controllers, and we had, at this point manufactured millions of guitars and drums and stuff, we thought maybe we can manufacture like a custom body tracking okay. controller, right? So we were prototyping gameplay and it was really promising. And uh, and then uh, Microsoft booked a meeting with us, I think at GDC, and disclosed to us their plans for Connect. And we all just looked at each other and like, <laughs> ah, well, it just so happens we have something that would be perfect for that. And uh, and so we, you know, showed them what we were up to with with Dance Central, and it was like it was a very easy partnership to figure out at that point because the you know that game and that technology were like made for each other. Oh, that's awesome! And, and in fact, on that note, I'm curious. So then we had Dance Central too. There was another one, but then uh, when Microsoft's launching the Xbox One, fast forward a few years. How on earth do they not call you to have a Dance Central three ready to go for launch? That you that was Dance Central was arguably the best and probably the best selling outside of the pack in game connect game there was. What, what were you guys just sort of 
on other projects and just couldn't do it? Or, or was there something else going on there? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't speak for Microsoft, obviously, but my guess is that, you know, we had done Dance Central 1, which was our, you know, our biggest seller on Connect. It, was, it had a crazy attach rate, yeah. as you said, to, to the Connect. We did Dance Central 2, which improved in a lot of ways, but actually sold less well. Then we did, we actually did a Dance Central 3 for the uh, Xbox 360 and Connect, which was, Improved. It was better in a lot of ways than the earlier titles, but also sold less well than the previous two. So there was a, a, a there was a sales a tapering sales curve yeah. that was not so dissimilar from what we had seen with the uh, uh, you know with the Rock Band and Guitar Hero sales uh, taper as well. And so you know I'm just guessing at this point, but if I'm Microsoft, I'm thinking like, well, um, you know, it's not clear that that title would have the power to really move move the dial again right. for this. Plus, you know, my guess is that normally with a new console launch, they're maybe focused on uh, wooing the core gamers in the beginning, and, you know, the Dance Center was never for the core gamers. Right. So right. this is all just speculation in any case. Makes sense. Uh, by the time Fantasia Music Evolved releases, Connect had, had more or less already been abandoned yep. by Microsoft at that point. Did you guys have any idea that that... That you know that situation with Connect was coming, and do you do you kind of do you have any regrets about about that project, or is it just sort of there's nothing you can do about it, and you move forward? Well, um, I, I would. I would say we had some sense that it could be coming simply because, you know, Microsoft was in a very difficult, you know, uh, market share battle with Sony, who was selling the, you know, the PS4 at a substantially lower price point. And a big chunk of the cost structure on the Xbox One was clearly the Kinect, which is an expensive piece of technology in every box. And the early adopters of the expensive new consoles, the core gamers, never really cared about Connect. So there was a lot of belly aching among the, the core gamer community about the expensive, you know, the, the price point of the Xbox One because of this piece of technology that they didn't care about. So we saw all of that. Yeah. And, you know, that's just a force of gravity. And I think ultimately, you know, I don't begrudge Microsoft. They made a decision that was probably the right decision for the console, which was to, to unbundle it. Now, of course, for us, making a title that presumed 100% attached, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we basically greenlit that project presuming you know, 100% attached of the, the connect to the Xbox One platform, that was a tough blow um, and kind of sealed the fate of that title in a lot of ways, I think. Um, but you know, that's business. You said, like, would we do anything differently? I mean, maybe we wouldn't have committed to a project of that size, you know, obviously, if we uh, had known that that's the way things were going to break. Yeah. Uh- so I'm curious. I've always I've been wanting to ask you this ever since Rock Band Four was announced and came out, because the the timing of uh, not only the release but the announcements of Activision bringing Guitar Hero back with Guitar Hero Live and you guys bringing Rock Band back with Rock Band Four were so close. They practically happened simultaneously. So was it? Did you guys start development and through? Record industry people, Activision gets word and says, "Oh crap, we better we better get this going too." Or is it is it the opposite? Is does Activision start? You, you, do you hear rumblings through contacts, and you guys go, "Uh oh, they're they're bringing it back. We better. This is our chance." Like, how, how, do you have any insight into how that happened? I think it's. I mean, we and they were all looking at the same data, right? So. Both franchises had devoted fan bases from the prior console generation. 
who you know were probably waiting for a comeback of some kind. Um, I don't think either of us wanted to get out there in the first holiday season when the installed base of the new tech now, you know, the new consoles right. is still so pretty low. small. Um, so by the, I, I would say by holiday of 2015, when both of us came back with those franchises, both of us had calculated that there was you know critical mass uh, on the new consoles that would be ready to buy those games. So I think it was really just both of us looking at the same market evolution um, and making the call to pull the trigger, uh, you know, at the same time. And you guys pulled off. Some pretty unprecedented stuff. With you, you carried forward the DLC on the Xbox platform. Did did when you first approached Microsoft about that? Did they just did they laugh at you, or do they do they right away go, yeah, we can make that work for you? Uh, probably somewhere in between those two <laughs> things. Like uh, you know, we, did, we we had the same conversation with Sony as well, um, and it was an, a massive massive undertaking because you're talking about thousands and thousands of independent DLC offerings, each one of which needs to be manually submitted, which had been done over a period of about of like five years right. by much larger organizations, you know, on both sides, you know, uh, back in the in the in the heyday. Um, and you know, so convincing both Microsoft and Sony to do the work that was going to be necessary to re reprop all of the uh, all of those offers for the new consoles, it was a tough proposation. It was a big ask to both of them to because it was a lot of work on our side, but also a lot of work on yeah, their side, right? right? Right, and neither you know the games the game is not as big in this generation nearly as it was in the last generation, so it was like a lot of work for less return for them. So. You know, I would say that we, uh, you know, we're pretty grateful to both Microsoft and Sony for doing the work to make that possible, and it was, it was just a huge priority for us because we think it was going to, we thought it was going to be critical to our players who had invested. In some cases, we have whales who have spent thousands and thousands of dollars on their DLC catalogs in the last generation to start over on this generation and say, hey, guess what, everybody. You're going to have to, you know, rebuy all the D- DLC you want. It, it might have been more lucrative for us to to do that but it just felt wrong and ultimately we just felt like we had to bite the bullet do the work and do what was right for the fan base so yes that you mentioning whales that remind are there are there people out there is there a person or multiple people who actually own every single song a few yep we have some folks who have thousands of pieces of dlc and some who literally have every piece of content we have ever released and I, I mean, I guess now with uh, on the new consoles with with external hard drives, you can fit it all. But the biggest there was on the 360, there were uh, 250 gig drives. Is that even enough to hold everything? Or I don't know. Do you have I, any idea? No, I think I, I think 250s would not be enough. I think they were already using external drives even on the on the last uh, generation. It's crazy, man. Um, so I'm probably going to look real dumb asking this, but I'm going to—I I have you here. I'm just going to take a shot anyway. I heard a rumor a long, long time ago that uh, from a from a person I trust, but that <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're already like laughing, but that that there was talk of of uh, bringing Rock Band back, but that you guys were talking to Activision about like uniting the families and say, well, let's you know this whole thing crashed. Let's let's just come back as one thing together. Was there any truth to that at all? Oh, I, possibly some. I mean, the Activision people we have known for a long time. You know, we uh, uh, 
we developed Guitar Hero 2, which was published right, by Activision by then, yeah. after the acquisition. So we know, know lots of people there. We were through lawsuits with them. We were, th- you know, in, in the, in, when, when Rock Band and Guitar Hero were competing, you know, we know, we, we know lots of folks there. So we've kicked around all manners of ideas over the years. And so maybe that was uh, one manifestation of that. So, you know, it's like we've been fierce competitors at various points. We may work together on projects in the future. You know, who knows? Yeah. Um, any chance that over the next year? I mean, so we're we're a nice way into Rock Band Four now. Uh, any is there still a chance we might see some big name artists pop up? I mean, we saw the Who, uh, the the big Who pack pop up well into the Rock Band life cycle, but you know the the Metallicas, the Springsteens, some of these sort of bigger artists that we either never had or it's been forever. Is there still a shot that uh, that some of these big boys might come around to Rock Band one day? Yeah, I mean we. Look, we, we hope to continue to invest in Rock Band as a living platform for a long time. We, we're still releasing weekly DLC yep. at, the, at this point, and we hope to for a long time. We just added a major new feature to the system, the synchronous online multiplayer. Yes. Um, and so we're, um, we hope that it remains a fertile platform for a long time, and we maintain an active dialogue with all the major music companies, a lot of major music managers, like trying to get some of those artists who have been holdouts for a while or who we haven't had in a while. So... Absolutely, I, w- I would say, you know, never say never on some of that stuff. The flip side is, you know, when, you're, when we were selling whatever, you know, five, seven million, you know, units uh, a year of the franchise, there was enough cash flow <laughs> to make it worth their while financially and not just because it was something that was cool, right? Yeah. And when you're dealing with, you know, artists, some of the artists of that stature, like if you're not, if you can't wave a seven-figure check in front of them, it's hard to get them to even, you know, pay attention, right? So, that what we get is some, often we get the bigger artists, you know, who still play ball with us in large part because they like the game and they just cool. they, they want to be involved with it. Um, I would also say that we have lots of new stuff in the works that isn't uh, rock band, and often with the new projects, um, either because the budgets are bigger or because it's new and new things, attra- you know, it's shiny objects. Uh, it's sometimes easier to get you know attract the attention of some of those giant artists. Who uh, who's the biggest artist that you? never got or have yet to get that you've always wanted in rock band? Led Zeppelin. <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously it's... The like, obvious answer, but still... Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, it's like I love Zeppelin. I like played in a Zeppelin cover band in high school. I, you know, it's like and, you know, it's like lots of people would love to see their, their music in the game. It would be wicked fun to play in the game. We've Obviously, we've asked repeatedly. Did you ever but, get close? Did you ever get a meeting with Jimmy Page? Or? Oh, we've, we've had dialogue with the, with the band, absolutely. Like, there's, it's, you know, I think they've given it serious consideration, but, you know, for various reasons, it hasn't been right for him. So. Oh, that is that is a shame. Um, never say never. You never know with these things. <laughs> what do you feel like the future of Rock Band is? I mean, you, we've got Rock Band VR coming up. Uh, yeah, well, so, I mean, obviously with the traditional console Rock Band, we're going to keep nurturing it in the obvious ways, I think. Um, you know, primarily with content, but also some, you know, gradual feature evolution. In terms of the big, bold, evolution of the the franchise rock band vr is our next step it's a pretty radical departure um from what rock band has been in the past and you know we'll see how that pans out so for the for those that may not be familiar with what it is because as we record it's not out yet yeah uh, i haven't had a chance to try it so what what's sort of the elevator pitch version because i think people think oh okay well so i'm just i'm 
I'm seeing the Note highway in, in, in VR. What's, but, so what, what is it and what, what makes it cool by being in VR? Sure. Well, actually, let me answer that by telling you a little bit of the kind of origin story Please. and how we got to where we were. So, um, you know, when we began talking with Oculus and we had an opportunity to start working on Rock Band and VR, the first thing we did, obviously, was just hook up, v- hook up Rock Band and VR, you know, <laughs> with the, the Note highway. Yeah. And, um, and it's pretty cool. You know, it's you're there in three in in you know in VR. The track is suddenly in 3D. It's like it's all really cool. But the thing that immediately becomes obvious within the first few minutes of playing with it is that you know Rock Band gameplay makes you look at one spot on the screen. At the note st- you can't even yeah. blink. You know, <laughs> in the fast passage of 16th notes rolling by, you don't even want to blink. So you're hyper fixated on this one point in space from the beginning of the music to the end, which is part of what makes Rock Band so kind of hypnotic in a regular console game context. But in VR, that's like that fixation on one point in space is the opposite of what's awesome about VR. You know, in VR, you want to be like in the space and looking around and absorbing everything that's great about being in that space. So our approach with Rock Band VR was, on the one hand, to preserve the classic gameplay because there are people who are just going to want to do that, and it is cool. And in fact, we've taken a slightly different... The gameplay is identical, but we've taken a different approach to the visuals that's kind of tailored for, okay. for, for VR. So um, we've really tried to make the track, the Note Highway, like really beautiful, more so in a way than, than we've ever had a chance to do in the past. Um, but the, the really exciting thing, I think, about Rock Band VR is that we invented completely new guitar gameplay to play to the strengths and the virtues of VR. And what we really want players to be able to do is be in the space, be on stage, look at these throngs of adoring fans gazing up into their eyes, you know, be able to look at all their band members playing their instruments, gaze up at the searing lights, like have the live rock performance experience to be there. Which is what your company is all about. Yes, and so... um, Doing that required inventing new guitar gameplay that doesn't require you to look at a track all the time. So the starting point for that was just building a guitar performance simulation system um, where you know you hold down various chord configurations on the car- guitar, you start strumming, and you start produ- producing music. And um, with a quite a high degree of control over the music that's coming out by choices that you make about how you're strumming and fingering and whatnot. Cool. So there's no gameplay there yet. It's just an awesome kind of guitar performance simulator that feels really good. From there, once we had that, we built gameplay that doesn't require you to gaze at an interface all the time. Essentially, there are lots of different things that we will score you for. Uh, we will... Uh, say at the top of every section, cue you on specific chord configurations you should be holding, so you okay. kind of need to check in to pay attention yeah. to that every once in a while. That's pretty cool. We also um, uh, score you for changing uh, changing your hand position in synchrony with the actual harmony and the music changing, uh, what we call chord following. doesn't require you to look at uh, an interface because you can hear it in the music once you've played a few times. We also score you for different kinds of pattern building. So there's like a Tony Hawk-style trick book hmm. that recognizes certain pattern changes. That's cool. You can choose any combination of chords you want to construct those patterns. So there's a lot of creative agency in the music making, but there are these objectives of specific patterns that we'll recognize and score you for. Um, and then there's a whole like overdrive system as well uh, layered on top of that. So there are all these different ways of earning score in the game that makes it a more like SSX or uh, Tony Hawk-style score acquisition system on top of this performative guitar experience that feels and, uh, really amazing. And you slap uh, one of the touch controllers onto the neck of your guitar, is that correct? Yeah, the head of your guitar, there's a clip that actually ships with the touch controllers, um, and uh, you can use any of your, you know, a, a, a current rock band guitar, 
And so you take the guitar right into the game with you. You know, put on your That's riff, cool. look down, and the guitar <laughs> is there with you in the space. It's really awesome for immersion, actually. So uh, I want to pivot for a second here because I have to ask you, I, I, I didn't actually know that you were in Broken Age until I played the game. And I was like, I know that voice. Who it? <gasps> now I know who it is. You, uh, you backed Double Fines, yeah, yeah, uh, Broken Age. Uh, at a at a high level, uh, to no doubt to support your your friends at, at Double Fine, and that enabled you you got to be a voice in the game. You actually had a pretty substantial role. How how fun was that? It was tremendously fun. I had never done anything like that. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Double Fine and, and Tim, and uh, so I was very happy just to be supportive of the game. But that, that actually making that cameo as a character uh, was super fun. I've never done voice acting of any kind or any acting of any kind, right? So uh, super amateur. But they had they had a, a, a voice director, this woman named Chris Brown, who's fantastically talented. Yeah, you see who, her a lot on the the uh, documentary. Yes, um, who handheld me through the whole thing and uh, made it a really entertaining experience. So. <laughs> That's so great. Uh, I've heard before. I've heard that Harmonix has a has a support system in place at the company that that allows your employees to go off on tour with their bands? Is that accurate? Uh, sort of. I mean, essentially, we, we very much want our employees to have, you know, rich lives outside of their day jobs, right? And so for our visual artists, that might be their visual art career, but often for many of our people, whether it's obviously our, our audio team or even their engineers and artists, many of the artists and engineers and everything else in the company are also in bands. Uh, and so if they want to um, take some time off to go live in that world for a while, normally we're pretty supportive of it. You know, we need to make sure that it works with our production schedules yeah. and whatnot, but yeah, it's... Uh, uh, it's we want you know we want our people to be developing as musicians and be inspired as musicians as well as everything else. That's great. I love that's amazing. I love that. Uh, in fact, like like many harmonics employees, you're in a band. I you're am. in a band. It, it's uh, with if I have it correct, it's with your brother Chris. Yeah. And the band is called New Fane. That is correct. Uh, so, what kind of music do you guys play, and and what instrument do you play? Uh, so, uh, I play drums in that band, and it is with my brother Chris, who actually works with me at Harmonix. He's our chief operating officer. And, uh, and, uh, Greg LaPiccolo, who is, uh, you know, who's worked at Harmonix mm-hmm. for years on bass, and, uh, a guy named Greg Huang, who's our singer songwriter. It's alt rock. You know, it's not a serious endeavor. It's a bunch of middle-aged guys just, like, playing rock for fun, you know. But it's all original songs. Check us out on newfane.bandcamp.com. That's awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, we have a lot of fun with it. What, what does music do for you, pl- playing music in Newfane? What does it do for you creatively and emotionally? Well, just going back to um, some of the comments I made earlier on, um, play, there is something just mysteriously and profoundly joyful about playing music, about your body uh, moving in synchrony with sound, about making sound, about doing it with a group of other people, about having like, you know, having your heartstrings tugged by this kind of, (laughs) this mysterious abstract sound wave somehow, like unlike every other art form, right? It's like writing, film, painting, it's all representational in some way. But music is this one art form that is completely abstract and yet has this power to move us emotionally on this like limbic level. It's crazy, and um, and that's certainly true when you're just listening to music as a you know as, as a listener, as a consumer of it. But it is doubly true when you are actively involved in making music. And 
you know, I said, it's we, we play in a band. It's not a serious endeavor for us, but it is still this just magically joyful experience to, to play music. So I, I hope I'm doing it to the day I die. That's awesome. Uh, last question I have for you. I'm curious, you know, you, you've brought Rock Band back. You've got these uh, other projects, uh, Rock Band VR, Drop Mix. What's, what's the future of, of harmonics? Because the company has such a unique skill set that, uh, you know, what, what kind of projects do you see the company taking on over the next five years? Um, well, I would say that there is a, a kind of a guiding theme for us right now as we try to invent new kinds of music gameplay. Um, and that uh, relates to what I'll call musical agency. Meaning, if you look at the history of music games and ry- rhythm action games, those games have mostly been games where you are prescribed a set of tasks and you are judged based on your ability to perform those right. tasks, right? There is no, there is no, uh, there's no creative agency on the part of the player. Like in Rock Band, there is a recording, and your job is to faithfully render that recording <laughs> for your performance, right? And if there's any binding theme in our projects going forward right now, I would say it's that we are trying to introduce ways for people to express themselves and make creative choices through the gameplay that will make the gameplay more interesting, that will make it more interesting and deeper as a musical experience. So, for example, in Rock Band VR, through this new gameplay, the player has the opportunity to make every single performance his or her own. Every performance is different uh, and new and makes it kind of mysterious as a, as a musical performance, not just as a gameplay experience. Um, in this uh, karaoke game we're making for Gear VR, Sing Space, um, you know, conventionally karaoke games have just judged you based upon your ability to sing and pitch. That's fine, but in Sing Space we're very much uh, using an audience of other users to judge you based upon how entertaining you are. Hmm. So if you're entertaining as a singer, your pitch accuracy maybe is not so important. Like, how expressive and interesting are you as a singer? Uh, In Drop Mix, every performance is different because combining these ingredients gets you these surprising results that sometimes are okay, and then occasionally you get these amazing combinations that, and you've created something that didn't exist before that sounds incredible. And you can save those. uh, Then you can save those and you can share them. And so this kind of um, creative agency uh, over music is a a theme that I think you will see a lot of in harmonics games over years to come. So harmonics' work is not yet done. Oh, no. That's what you're telling me. uh, not, not Not in the least. Well, Alex, thank you so much. This was an absolute pleasure. Alex Rogopoulos, the chairman and co-founder of Harmonix Music Systems, uh, makers of some of the games that have given me some of the best memories ever in gaming. Uh, for more uh, from the very best, brightest, and most fascinating minds in the games industry, be sure to check back for new episodes of Unfiltered every week. Uh, new segments every week, new episodes every month right here on IGN. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.